So I'm going to go back a long time ago. The first church that I was privileged to pastor was uh, in Meriden, Iowa. Hello, everybody there online. Even got somebody from Meriden that watches once in a while. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a young pastor, and we had a parsonage. Now, for you younger people, a parsonage is a house owned by the church that the pastor got to live in. And it was a beautiful home. And I had my desk situated in the church building in the office. It was, the parsonage was right next door. So I could look out uh, the window and see the parsonage. Had a big old circular driveway. Now, we're going back about 35 years. And I remember my oldest daughter, Kirsten, who happens, uh, my oldest girls, Kirsten and Casey, happened to be here. Kirsten was out there, and we had worked on her learning to ride a bike. But she hadn't completely figured it out yet. She was doing pretty well, and I'd worked with her, and Julie had worked with her. But I looked out, and she was out there on her bike, learning how to ride her bike. And I'll never forget, because I'm sitting in my office, and I see her riding, and she's wobbling and going and starting to get it, and then, bam, and she would crash. I'm going to tell you, as a dad, oh, oh, even if you're not a parent, you can imagine what that feel like. Then she'd get up again, and she'd go a little while, and then, bam, she would crash again. And, and, oh, it just broke my heart. And I was tempted, of course, to go out there and help her because I, I could have. But here's the other side of it. I loved her perseverance. I'm sitting there, and it's breaking my heart as she's crashing and burning. But there's this other side of it. I'm watching this girl who it is still a strong attribute of, of who she is. Challenges come her way. You know what she does? She works through them. And so I was sad to see her crash. But I'm going to tell you, there was this pride and there was this happiness. Because I figured, though she's going to hurt herself, that'll heal. And there, as I remember, there was a scrape on her knee. But she's learning to ride this bike, and she's going to find joy in that for the rest of her life. Now, the reason this has stuck with me is it's the first time that I ever remember really being conscious of experiencing two emotions at the same time. I mean, I don't like watching my kids or grandkids or you deal with any pain. I don't like it. But there was also this joy and this happiness. Now, we live in a world, and this is just my perspective. It feels like people are kind of either happy or sad. And the primary determiner of what their emotions are are the circumstances that are right in front of them staring them in the face. If those circumstances are good, we got the braze, we got the new car, our kid hit a home run, When circumstances are bad, we're struggling for money. The doctor's telling us stuff we don't like to hear. And we're sad. Being happy or sad exclusively, feels to me like a less thoughtful way to live life. Somewhat superficial. 
The reality is we live in a broken world. There's no end to the brokenness. There's no end to the hurt. If we're not in some sort of continual state of grieving, I think maybe we need to get out of our bubble and our egocentricity. Even if it's not the pain immediately on us. But for those of us who love Christ, who love God, we've got a God who claims that he's in control of everything. And for those of us who love Christ, he's using it for our good. So it feels like to me the healthiest perspective in life, the one that produces that deep joy that cannot be rocked is living in this place where we have mixed emotions. Sorrow for the brokenness, but a joy that God is even using the brokenness for our good. Now, we're at the end of chapter 12 today, and this is a transition. John, as he writes about Jesus here, is this is going to be the end of what he's going to do in terms of Jesus' interaction with the public. Now, we got a bunch of chapters going forward, 13, and we'll pick that up in two weeks. But this is Jesus now with the disciples, giving them more of a crash course and a deeper look at who he is and who they're supposed to be as they live this life. And so as John, the writer, ends this and transitions, we're going to look at two pieces here this morning. The first is a summary, I think, of, of what John is trying to, to, to point out as he now transitions in the telling of Jesus' life. And the second piece in this transition is his recording some words of Jesus, where Jesus is, I think, going to summarize theologically and spiritually everything he's said so far. But I'm just going to tell you now, you don't see me sit here very often, do you? We're going into some deeper stuff. It's hard stuff. Now, I want to remind you, John wrote this book to evangelize. So if you're here today and you don't yet treasure Christ, you're online, you don't yet treasure Christ, this is not necessarily going to be easy stuff, but it's intended for you. John wrote this that we might trust in Christ more or come to trust him. So you're ready to tie into it? Does sitting it, when I sit here, does this make you tense? Let's tie into it. Because we're going to go into these ideas. It's about mixed emotions. And there's some tough stuff for us to think about. Now my conviction is when we read this stuff, it ought to break our hearts. And we ought to grieve. Simultaneously, and this is John's big point, we ought to be encouraged. But not necessarily easy stuff for us to process. So we're going to begin with John's commentary. John, the author here, kind of working it up and finishing Jesus' public ministry. You ready to go? Here we go. So though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Father, I pray you'd work in our hearts here. This is a book written to help us believe. Ah, John unmistakably says that is his purpose. We live in a world where sometimes thinking about you, ah, it can be foreboding. But we pray that would not be the case. For everybody who is now hearing my voice, Father, I pray that your spirit would be doing a work that I, that anybody here is incapable of doing. I pray that you would reveal more thoroughly and more deeply to our minds and our hearts ah, how committed you are to us, how involved you are in all the details of life, how involved you are in our seeing the truth of who you are. May we understand this appropriately. May we not stretch it beyond what, what you intend. But may we see your love and your grace. Oh, Father, may we leave here today embraced in your loving arms, Father. And may we go out with that love into the world to point others to that love. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting here with John's commentary. And here's the big idea of his commentary. Most of the Jews, most, rejected Jesus. And I'm afraid sometimes we read these stories and we read them from 2,000 years ago and I'm afraid we read them and we... be quite candid, as lovingly as I can, process it without really thinking about it. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. He came to the Jews. And most of them rejected him. That ought to just break our hearts. When there's ever anybody that chooses not to trust Jesus. And they had numerous expressions of his glory. As we've gone through 12 chapters, John hasn't recorded them all, not nearly recorded them all. I don't believe all the Gospels contain all the things he did, if you look at the different ones. But he's given us some great pictures of it. Though he had done so many signs before them, he had turned water into wine. There's a bunch of us that ought to be celebrating that. He'd walked on the water. Ah! He took five loaves and two fishes and fed over 5,000 folks. He healed numerous people. And he was building through this book to finally Lazarus, 
and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's so much in the biblical text that I wish John would have included, but it wasn't his point. But it's part of what I would be fascinated to hear. Remember Mary and Martha? Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd love to see their response when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. You know, I just want to see Mary and Martha who were pointing a finger at Jesus when Lazarus is raised from the dead. How do they respond? Now they throw him a great dinner. But I'm assuming at some point Mary and Martha each went to Jesus, probably collectively because it's better to apologize with somebody else. Said, Lord, Sorry we didn't trust you a little more. We're actually grateful that you didn't listen. Because we now more clearly see who you are than we ever would have seen if you'd have come and just healed him. Now, we obviously weren't there physically, but we got the accounts of these glorious things. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Here's how John is wrapping up now Jesus' public ministry. Jesus rejected, the Jews rejected Jesus because he was not what they were expecting. They were looking for this military conqueror. They had really a wrong idea. So back to the text. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, this is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if you read Isaiah 53, it's a great text. It's about the suffering servant. It's a beautiful prediction, 700 years before he died, about how he was going to die and how he was going to be rejected. And they didn't get it because they didn't see him. Now here's how the first two verses of Isaiah 53 go. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 700 years before Jesus came into the world and died, here's what God told the prophet Isaiah to say. People aren't going to want him. He's not coming in the form that they're expecting. 700 years. It's all there. What ends up happening was laid out by Isaiah. And the Jews were responsible for their rejection of Jesus. Don't miss this because we're going into this that's going to be a little bit of a brain twister as we work through this. But do not miss this. Unmistakably as we've been reading through John. They are responsible for their decision. If you go back to verse 37, though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Implied in John's mind as he writes this, unmistakably, is that the Jews who did not believe, though they had the evidence, were responsible for their choice to reject him. Don't miss this. And John has made this clear all through the gospel. There are several passages. I'm just going to reference one. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These Jews in mass despite the evidence to who Jesus was, were rejecting Jesus. And if they didn't come around and believe in him after the resurrection, this would be the consequence. I don't know how we read a text like this without our heart being broken. I'm reading yesterday, 2 Chronicles, end of 2 Chronicles, King Ahaz of Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, built idols to Baal, and he sacrificed his sons. The world is a dark place. My heart breaks. I've got a friend I've shared with you that's struggling with pancreatic cancer. Do we need to list the pain that we're dealing with in this broken world? It ought to be breaking our hearts. But let me suggest from a spiritual point of view, nothing ought to break our hearts more than people who reject Jesus. I got friends. I'm trying to help them see the love of Jesus. I got a bunch of them yet that don't see the truth of who he is. The people I've known that as best I could assess, unless in those last moments before they could speak that they get right with God and treasure Christ, They died without loving Christ. I've talked to numerous of you who grieve loved ones particularly who don't love Christ that are facing difficult things. Maybe even the end of their life. Folks who had said goodbye to loved ones and as best we could tell they did not treasure Christ. Guys, this ought to break our hearts. That grief for me never goes away. It's heavy. Now again, for some of us, we're going, oh, this is deep. John's writing this in order to help people come to trust Christ. And the Jews misinterpreted much of the Old Testament. I'm going to go here because one of our values here is to help people read the Bible accurately. Because when we don't get it right, there's nothing more important than getting this right. We were walking at the beach yesterday, uh, my girls and my, my wife and I and my, my granddaughter Eden, and we're down at Newport Pier, and oftentimes there are folks with Jehovah's Witnesses. I have mixed emotions when I see these Jehovah's Witnesses. 
they got a wrong view of God. But I respect their passion. They're out there on a Saturday morning sharing what they believe. But they're wrong. They misinterpreted. There's a lot of folks out there using our Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses are primarily using our Bible with some translation differences. Here's the difference again. They won't tell you who translated their Bible. So you have no idea if they have credentials in the original languages. Now, if I'm thinking about considering that faith, I'd want to know, well, are the guys that translated this from Hebrew and Greek, do they know what they're doing? You can't find out with a, a Jehovah's Witness Bible. A little more of Isaiah 53. And this is to show you that Jesus coming into the world and how he was received and what happened to him was all there. That the Old Testament experts, the Old Testament priests, the Old Testament guys that were experts in the reading of the word, they missed it. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, talking about Jesus now, 700 years before, like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground, and he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, every stinking one of us. We have turned every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They had it! He's doing all these miracles, all these miracles, and if they just read Isaiah 53, they should have looked at it and gone, that is him. They had the truth, but they didn't interpret it accurately. We want to do our best we can because there's nothing more important than having an accurate picture of who God is. And that picture is that he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. So no bigger revelations thus far. Now we're getting to the part that might cause us a little tension in our head. Now, I just want to suggest, when the biblical authors present this truth that we're going into, that we've already read, it doesn't appear that it causes them any tension. We must choose Jesus, and we're responsible for that decision, and yet God is simultaneously in control. You ready to look at it? John's commentary, most of the Jews reject Jesus. Here's the hard part. Writing primarily to get people to believe in Jesus. This was by God's design. Now how many, let me see a raise of hands, how many already is this causing just a little emotional tension? Can I see your hands? 
Okay, because if none of you raise your hands, I'll just go to the very last commentary by Jesus where he summarizes it. But let's pull this apart. Now, this is why it's here. This is to encourage us. Our hearts break with the choices that people were responsible for making, but this is to encourage us. Jesus being rejected by the Jews was God's infinite, eternal plan being fulfilled. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Back to Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. This is all according to God's plan. For again, Isaiah said, now John is quoting Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. This is God's plan. Now, if you look at Isaiah 6 and you go back to Isaiah 6, here's what's going on in Isaiah 6. Isaiah gets this vision, this glorious vision of God like only very, very few people have gotten. And, and God says, will you go? And you know what Isaiah says? I will, Lord. I've seen your glory. Then go read all of Isaiah 6. You know what God tells Isaiah? I want you to go and preach. I want you to prophesy to my people. But understand this. They're going to reject just about everything you have to say. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind tends to go to, so why are you sending them? <laughs> to Isaiah, to John, God is sovereign and he is working. The Jews rejecting Jesus was used by God to purchase our salvation. It was his plan. This is the way he designed us to work. And John wants those first readers and us to understand God was working in the midst of this mass rejection of, of, of Jesus by the Jews. Now, on the positive side, if you go back to John 6, Jesus has already said, nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. Last week, Stephen did a great job with the text. Jesus, when he's crucified, said, I will draw all men to myself, meaning those who are supposed to follow him. It's going to work. We got us making decisions. Now, you know how much of the sovereignty of God I understood when I came to faith? Is it all right for me to admit? None of it. None of it. You know why I chose Jesus? Because quite frankly, I'm smarter than the average bear. I'm smarter than those Jews who didn't figure it out despite all the evidence in front of them. I came in about 24 to treasure Christ, and I'm just going to tell you at that point, I figured it out. Then I started reading the Bible. Did I figure it out? I did. 
Did I figure it out on my own? Not even close. And that's the encouragement that John is trying to give to us. God is working in all the details of life. We're making decisions. But this was how God designed for Jesus to die. And there's nothing that happened that was outside of his control. I want you to notice here, John ends this piece by making clear that not everybody rejected Jesus. He just had that general in verse 37 statement, everybody believed. He's going to qualify that here at the end. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and I believe here, here his represents Jesus, 700 years, and spoke of him, Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Despite what I just told you about the prophecies of Isaiah and this mass rejection, not everybody, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So when he uses belief here, I don't think he's saying they had this wholehearted, full belief like Mary expressed when she put perfume on Jesus. But I think what John is trying to say, there were some of these folks that they were wondering about Jesus. It is my conviction, and I wish John would have told us. It's not his point, so it's good. I'm convinced some of these folks came to faith, real full faith, after the resurrection. What John's just trying to say here, he hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen from the dead. There's some folks still wrestling with this. So, how do we deal with this? I've shared with this before with you. We're responsible, and yet God is sovereign. Jonathan Edwards, an old American preacher... I think a really smart guy. And the way we put some of this together, I think it's the best explanation I've seen, is that God looks through a small lens and then he works at the big lens simultaneously. In the small lens, he sees what's going on in our life, he sees what's going on in their life, and life just sometimes stinks. I look at our culture and what appears to me to be happening and I go, man alive, this is not good. It breaks my That's the small lens. So when God looked even at these Jews that were rejecting him, his heart was breaking like ours breaks. Small lens. But he also looks at it at the big lens, and he sees how all these small pictures go together to promote his glory. Guys, Jesus died because the Jews essentially moved to have him executed. How crazy is that? But God, that's his big plan. That's the big plan. Now, can we see from the big lens? No. We can't see all of this that's working. We just see the small lens. You know what faith in Jesus is? Believing God's got a big lens. And we got story after story through Scripture where God's showing us how the big lens works. But we get stuck in the small piddly lens. It's part of being human. Faith is believing God's got a big lens, even when the small lens. See, I caught myself. I was going to say a word. Could you? Stephen knows me. He got, that was a good catch, wasn't it? <laughs> and that's what, that's what John's trying to get us to see. Now, I got one story. I'm going to trust you guys to stay with the flow here, but it just occurred to me, it came to mind, about God knowing everything in the future and us not. Is it okay if I tell you a quick story? 
So I heard this from my daughter, Casey, uh, my granddaughter who's eight. She's in Sunday school here a few weeks ago, and the Sunday school teacher's telling about how God knows the future and God knows everything and we don't. And she says to the teacher, I do. And the teacher said, well, can you illustrate? And she said, I know my dad's going to be 15 minutes late to pick me up. Now, if you know David and Casey, they were part of our church family for a long time. If you know David, this is even funnier. But uh, 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 yes, uh, all, uh, all true. Now, let's go to Jesus' summary. We're going to move through this pretty quickly because these have all been theological ideas that we've pulled apart before. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm just going to summarize quickly. So John's wrapping up the public ministry of Jesus. He does that by encouraging us with this. God is working all the time. He's got a big lens. You're in the small lens. Sometimes it looks like it stinks. Believe God's got a big lens. Jesus' summary. This is how he wraps it up, and then we're going to Matthew, uh, into verse 13, chapter 13 in two weeks. And Jesus cried out and said, now, I think it's tough from the text. If you go back to verse 36 that we didn't look at today, Jesus went and hid himself. I don't know whether Jesus came back and said these things chronologically. I think more likely, I don't know. John is just now summarizing some of the teachings of Jesus that he heard. You comfortable with that? Everybody comfortable with that? I think that's most likely what's going on. Now, as he ends this, before he goes into Jesus, just with the disciples. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees uh, 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 him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge, uh, do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So I'm going to summarize quickly. This is all theology. I think, I think what John's doing is he's taking a composite of what he's heard Jesus say, all quotes of Jesus, and he's putting them together as he transitions now from the public ministry. And he's just kind of summarizing the first 12 chapters theologically. Here's what Jesus says. To believe in me is to believe in God the Father. Because Jesus is God. I am God, Jesus says. I've come into the world to be light. You live in darkness. You live in brokenness. I've come to be light, to give you hope in the darkness. Come to me and I'll be that light. I came into the world to save, not to judge. I didn't come here to condemn you in coming into the world. I left the glory of heaven, humiliated myself in becoming a human being, and I'm going to go die for you. I'm the good shepherd. I'm doing that. Not to judge you. I'm doing that because I love you. I love you. I love you. And whoever rejects me will be judged. Don't miss this. This is where progressive Christianity uh, uh, is, is going. Uh, pro progressive uh, Christianity, uh, post-evangelicalism, some of those names. People that, yeah, eh, you don't really get judged. But he has made it very clear. But whoever treasures me will enjoy eternal life. There's the big idea. Pick it up at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. 
what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Ah, this is it. This is the big idea right there. Treasure Christ and you have life, you have purpose, you have meaning. You saw Ray and Rob get up here and talk about this. We know inflation's up. We know all that. But doggone it. Well, I shouldn't have said doggone it. If that's offensive to you, I apologize. Jesus is Lord. Life is tough. It's always been tough. Jesus is Lord and he changes lives. So... We're going ahead. And I think I can speak for Rob and Ray. We're going to go ahead until we either die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. But Jesus is Lord, and there's eternal life in him. Ah, this is good. So here's what I'm going to encourage. Our hearts should break. I'm never in a state of not grieving. I don't hear me saying I'm equally conscious of all my emotions simultaneously, but if you follow me, I'm never not grieving. We got enough brokenness and hurt in just this church family. I look beyond that to friends and family I have. I look at the world. Just think about what you got going on in your life that should make you sad. I'll say it again, not because I don't think you were listening, but just to be clear. The number one thing that ought to be breaking our hearts is people rejecting Jesus. I really don't believe anything else ought to compare to that. I grieve with my buddy who's got wrestling pancreatic cancer. It's ugly. But he loves Christ. It's not the same grief I feel when I have friends that I know that don't love Christ that are wrestling with those things. There's enough sadness. If we're not sad, I don't think we're paying attention, not caring. On the other hand, our hearts should be encouraged. In our broken world, God is active and working to promote his glory and love. 700 years before Jesus died, God said, here's what's going to happen. He told Isaiah, go preach. Now, I want you to be prepared. They aren't going to listen. But I want you to go preach. Here's what's going to happen. They're not going to like what you have to say, and they're going to ridicule you, and they're going to make fun of you. It is really not going to go well. Go, Isaiah, with my blessing. God is working right now in your life, whatever you got going on. Whatever pain you're dealing with, whatever hardship you're dealing with, here's what I promise you. God is at work trying to draw you closer to himself, be less dependent on positive circumstances to make you happy, find the joy that's in relationship with him, and then through that, demonstrate to others that Jesus, he's it. And we are privileged to experience his glory and love because he has worked in us and is working to reveal himself in us. If you love Christ, I didn't understand this when I came to faith. I can't tell you what it means to me that God worked in my life to bring me to faith. If you treasure Christ, it wasn't just you. Was it your decision? Yes. Was it your decision alone? 
Not if you understand what God says in the Bible. If you're here today and you're thinking about treasuring Christ, here's my confidence. God is working or you wouldn't come listen to me. Why would you listen to me? The only possible reason is somehow that God moved in your life. And if you're still considering, keep thinking about it. Don't make a commitment till it makes sense to you. But here's my confidence. If you're wrestling with whether or not to treasure Christ, God is in fact at work. And then we have this pleasure of being able to share this with others. In his sovereign plan, do I have any idea in whose heart he's working? I don't. I'm convinced that the main reason John shares this here in the book is he's writing his gospel roughly 40 years, 40 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. You with me? He's trying to get people to be saved. You know why they don't want to treasure Christ? John, you tell us to follow Christ, he's great, but the Jews, he's the king of the Jews, he's the savior of the Jews, and they are in mass rejecting him. You know why John writes this? The Jews in mass rejecting Jesus is actually a great reason for you to trust that he's the Messiah. Because 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said that's exactly what's going to happen. So you're wrestling with whether I ought to trust Jesus because those who saw his miracles didn't. It's actually evidence for the truth of who he is. Father, you are good. You are glorious. Thanks for sending Jesus into this world. Thanks for revealing truth to us that is sometimes hard to work through. Lord, thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your persevering after me. Thank you for helping me to see your hand in my own salvation. Oh, Lord. I don't understand how all this works. I really have no idea what your sovereign plan is other than you're going to eventually send Jesus back. But help me to live with the confidence that comes from knowing you are working in me and in us. And you're working even in the lousy circumstances of our life. You're using them to draw us to you. Help us to trust that your spirit is alive and moving right now, whatever we're facing. May we leave here today convinced that you've got this big picture in mind. Though we can't see it, help us to trust and to move forward in faith.